Father, we do commit this morning to you and with this topic especially. I just pray that, that you would somehow communicate to us what it is that we need to hear. And that we would walk out of this service this morning, having been together with these people called Antioch, and, and that somehow we would have received comfort or knowledge or encouragement. And Father, that can only come through you, and so we would just commit this morning to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in week two of a two-part series on the, the problem of pain or the problem of evil, uh, the problem of pain and suffering. And I want to start this week kind of by recapping the argument a little bit so that hopefully we can see what the problem is, and, and I think that'll open up a little bit what the solution is. And so I want to break it out for you on the board here in a logical format. So this is going back to logic. If you, if you took logic in, in uh, college, you're going to maybe remember some of this. But a modus tollens argument, there's modus ponens, modus tollens, they're the reverse of each other, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle and the Greeks and the beginning of kind of formal logic. And the whole idea is, here is if P, then Q, and if not Q, therefore conclusion, not P. Okay, some of you, that's all you need to hear this morning, and you're blessed and you can leave. Um, <laughs> let me give you an example of that. So if we go forward a slide... If he is the king, if P, then Q, then he has a crown. Not Q, there is no crown, therefore not P, there is, uh, he is not king. So if he is the king, then he has a crown. If there is no crown, the conclusion is, therefore, he is not king. Uh, so if we kind of put what, the next slide up there. If we put the problem of evil in a modus tollens kind of format here, this is how it would read. If there is an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, then there will be no evil or suffering. If P, then Q. Okay, the next premise is there is evil and suffering. And the conclusion then is there is no all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God. Okay, that's a logical argument. If there is no loving, all-powerful God, then there will be no evil or suffering. And since there is evil and suffering, therefore there must not be an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God. Now, if the premises are true, the conclusion follows from the premises. Does that make sense? If premise one is true and premise two is true, then the conclusion follows. Now, if we look at this, what we want to say is premise two isn't necessarily complete. So the next slide we've got kind of argument, we'll, we'll cash that out a little bit. Going back to our example one, if, the, if he is the king, we had talked about, then he has a crown. But we can also say, if he is the king, then he has a crown or a scepter. There is no crown, therefore, if he has a scepter, he is king. Or if he is king, he must have a scepter. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're adding a clause in there to try and make premise two, or, or the second half of premise one, I'm sorry, more complete and more accurate. And, and so therefore it follows, if there is no crown, that either he is not king or he has to have a scepter. So if we look at the problem of evil this way, we would want to re re rewrite it this way. That if there is an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, then either there will be no evil or suffering or 
all things will resolve for good. On the balance, at the end of it, when you put it all down, the justice of God will be preserved because it will all make sense that a God that could and did know about it and is morally perfect, okay, that God did have a plan that resolved for good, and we can all see that. Does that make sense? Okay? And obviously, heaven's a big part of that. So, let me read it again. If there's an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, then either there will be no evil or suffering, or all things will resolve for good. The next premise is this. There is evil and suffering again. So the conclusion of our modified argument is this. Therefore, all things must resolve for good if there is an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God. Because there is evil and suffering, all things must resolve for good if there is an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, if God is going to be justified in some sense. Okay? Now, I want you to, to key in on just a couple words here because it's going to set us up for what we're talking about. And those words are this in the first premise. All things will. All things will. So if God really is the God that we worship, then, and because of evil and suffering, all things will have to. And that word will kind of just stretches it out through time, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that it's going to resolve itself by the end of today. Uh, by the time you leave this parking lot, I mean, wouldn't that be a great marketing ploy? Come to our church, and by the time you leave the parking lot, all things will have resolved for good. The will is stretches out in time, and it stretches out almost indefinitely, stretches out through your lifetime to varying degrees, stretches out into eternity. And so the whole idea here, as we look at God and we look at evil, and we try and reconcile these two things, we are put in a position, okay? We are put in a position in the face of this where we have to wait. The word wait is kind of the one and only answer to the problem of pain in some sense. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we see this rich theology of, of this phrase called waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. Because we have to wait as He justifies Himself through His plan as it works towards good. And it involves patience. Now, that, that sounds really great and all. But that, that part about there being evil and suffering really throws us off. Because a lot of us come in this morning and, uh, and there's pain in our life. The economy's failing. You, you might have lost your home. You might have lost your business. You might be afraid or scared to death that you're going to lose your home and your business. You might be coming in and, and you're going through a divorce or just went through a divorce and you're confused and it's difficult and you're starting over in some respects. You might be a high school student and you're absolutely terrified of life because high school scares you or people scare you and there's insecurities or you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see and it makes you afraid and there's pain and there's suffering and it's real. You might be in your 20s or 30s and you're alone and you're not married and you're single and... And it's scary. It's scary. You're lonely and you don't know if or when that's going to resolve itself. You might be in a, in a business or a job and, 
and people are operating unethically, and with all the competition that's going on there in the bad economy, it's so hard to deal with that injustice out there. And then I think we all these days look at the news and we see things going on like 30,000 children under the age of five dying every single day. From war, disease, hunger, preventable causes of death. And we think, whoa, how do we deal with that pain and that suffering? And that pain is right here and it's right now. And so this idea of waiting on the Lord sounds like a religious mantra but how do we really understand that? How do we really grapple with that? How do we really get there? So this morning we're looking at Habakkuk. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And we're just going to look at the whole book of Habakkuk and see how this resolves itself. If, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, this might be the Sunday where you look at the table of contents first. It's like three little chapters, and you can miss it pretty easy, but... It's uh, towards the end of the Minor Prophets. If you start kind of in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and just go to the right, you'll see a lot of short little books and Habakkuk's tucked in there. It's on page 729. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I always want to say that. All right. Now Habakkuk writes, he writes probably around 600 B.C., and Habakkuk and Jeremiah are the two prophets that write before the southern kingdom, the lower kingdom, gets carted off into slavery. And so he's writing at a time where there's a lot of things going on externally, looking, you know, coming down and bearing down on the nation of Israel. And before too long, they're going to get carted off and brought into exile, taken away out of their native land. And not only is that going on externally, what really starts Habakkuk going is Habakkuk's looking around and all he sees is injustice. Okay, all he sees is injustice. Now, the, the interesting thing about Habakkuk, and I think two of the reasons why it's fitting for us talking about the problem of evil, is number one, Habakkuk's been called the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He's been called the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He wrestles with God throughout this book. He wrestles with God throughout this book. And I think that's, it's really important because what we're trying to do here is talk about a subject, and I'll give it all away, that begins with faith and ends with faith. There's no answer that solves it. There's only encouragement or comfort in some sense to continue on with faith. And we're going to see that the hallmark of this book is that the righteous will live by faith. So Habakkuk is called the Doubting Thomas, and he wrestles with God. The second reason why this book makes a lot of sense, and it goes with the first, is it's the only book in the whole Bible where it's all a dialogue between a person and God. It's, it's all kind of a back and forth between a person and God, and it doesn't talk about any historical narrative outside of that. It's kind of just this dialogue between Habakkuk and God, and then Habakkuk's response, kind of prayer back to God, and, and that means something to me. I was looking at like some other things uh, in commentaries, and with Habakkuk, it's like a field day for preachers to slap these little cool word games on it, and it's... And it's stuff like, from fear to faith, the story of Habakkuk. Another guy was like, when you know the planner, you understand the plan. And then one was uh, from worry to worship. And I just like, 
That kind of stuff makes me want to puke. You know, it really does. And, and that's not what Habakkuk's doing. Habakkuk's not a prophet that preaches at us. We get to just take a peek into his struggle, and I think we see threads and, and, and themes that relate to the struggles that we have. And I think we get to take comfort from that because he's not preaching at us. We just get to peek in. So a quick shot through the book of Habakkuk. Let's sketch it out, and then we're going to spend time towards the end. So Habakkuk begins in verse 2 this way. Habakkuk says this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? There's destruction and violence before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous and justice is perverted. There's pain, there's suffering, there's evil. Uh, the guy on the end of this street, I know what he's doing. That guy across the street, like he's cheating everybody in his business. This guy is extorting and exploiting these people. The, the guy at the other end of the village or that his little clan, they're all bad, the Hatfields, whatever. You know, but it's, it's all bad kind of where I'm looking at it. God, what are you going to do? So God answers in verse 5, and this is where it begins to just get... Our conversations with God start this way. It's like really rational. It's like talking to a friend. And then you realize real quickly that God's not the same kind of friend, you know? I mean, the conversation just goes somewhere totally different. So Habakkuk, it's rational. Hey, in my gut, this is just all off. It doesn't make sense. It's not right. It's not the way it ought to be, God. You know, my neighbors and the guy across the street and the guy down, down on the, the other village here. God says this. Look at the nations. Get your eyes off of the street or the village. Look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Okay, that's a little scary. When God says, man, even if you were told, you're not going to believe it. I'm going to blow you away. And guess what? I'm pretty big. I can do it. Okay, um, and this is what he says. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own, a feared and dreaded people. And he goes on and he says, I'm raising up these Babylonians. They're going to come down. Okay, this is my plan, Habakkuk. You know, pay attention. Eyes here. And they're going to take all of the Israelites, they're going to take all of you, and they're going to cart you off back to their homeland. Your women and children and people are going to die, and, and there's going to be horrible things happening on. You're going to be put into slavery. You're going to lose your home. And, and, and all that's going to happen in your time, they're going to get scooped up and carted off. That's my plan. Be amazed. And Habakkuk's like... Um, beginning of verse 12, he kind of responds to God and says, <laughs> whoa, whoa, how in the world is that a good thing? I I'm talking about the guy down the street or the family that are parents of the kid in the school and their family is bad and our families are fine. I'm talking about very practical issues of injustice right here, right now. You need to fix it so that it is solved. 
Okay, the, the people dying and being exploited in this world. Fix it right now so that it's solved and it's back to the way it's supposed to be. And God says, guess what? I'm going to make it a hundred times worse. I'm taking your whole nation and carting them off. And Habakkuk just freaks out. It's like, I'm not even talking about my neighbor anymore. God, think about that. You're, you're going crazy, God. You're going the wrong direction. I'm pointing here, and, and, and instead of fixing it, you're making it worse. I mean, how frustrating would it be if God like thundered out of the clouds when you prayed, like, hey, I've, I've got a broken leg, God, and help me with that, or, I mean, something small, and God all of a sudden came back and, and just took it to a whole new level. Habakkuk quickly forgets about the little things that he's been seeing. And he goes back at God and says, you can't do that. It doesn't make sense. It's not right. It's not just. And then the beginning of chapter 2, he says this, I will stand at my watch. I'll station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what, what you'll say to me and what answer I'm going to give to this complaint. So I'm going to go position myself kind of at the corner of the city and I'm going to look out and my, my prayer in some sense is out to you and I'm going to wait to see what comes back to, to this kind of confusion that I've got. How in the world could we go from this big to ten times the size? How could we do that, God? And God answers and says, hey, uh, you don't get the whole picture. Okay, there's injustice. I'm going to come. I'm going to cart off all those people to this nation that's just proud, doesn't worship me, that they're bad people. And guess what? I've already got their downfall and their destruction planned after this chastening of Israel that I'm going to be doing, this discipline in some sense. And they're going to get an even worse punishment, and it's all going to solve itself. It's going to, it's going to solve itself. I've got a plan. It's going to work out. This is what I'm going to do. And so some things that God says, he says, though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. And he goes on and God says, the righteous will live by his faith. In other words, trust me. Walk with me for a while. Let the whole story unfold. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't bail out now. Don't take the next exit. Continue to walk in faith even if you can't see it. And it concludes at the end of chapter 2 with this kind of amazing thing. And it's not somebody else saying it. It's God saying it about himself. He says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He's saying, I know you don't understand, but I've already got the next part worked out. I'm a chess player. I've got 20 moves, 20,000 moves worked out. You can't comprehend all that. I understand. You just walk by faith. You wait for it, okay? But I've got it all solved out. I know what I'm doing. And at the end of the day, here's the deal. I'm in my holy temple. I'm, I'm over all of this. I'm the Lord. Come before me and be silent. And Habakkuk responds this way in chapter 3. He responds by writing a song. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk is a psalm. It's, it's a kind of a prayer, a worship song written for music. If you look at the very last phrase in, in Habakkuk, it says this, For the director of music on my stringed instruments, 
I'm writing this out, Habakkuk is, and he's saying, this is going to be my song, and, and I want it to go with the stringed instruments, not the, the brass, you know, not, not something else. The stringed instruments, because this is going to be sung, and this is how I want it to go. A lot of people believe that Habakkuk was a Levite, that he was a priest in the temple, and that his ministry or his capacity or his area was that of music or song. In some sense, he's a worship pastor. This would be like Justin wrestling with, Justin, our worship pastor, wrestling with things going on in his life and then coming to this position of going, you know what, God, I don't get it all, but I'll, I'll be okay, I'll follow, and let me put this, kind of my feelings, my emotions, let me put this into a song so that we can sing it because when you invoke the emotions, that's really where we connect with God. When someone's talking to you and their eyes are looking all over the place, and they notice every little thing going on around you, you begin to think they're more aware of things outside of the conversation than they are things inside the conversation. It's kind of a, one of those things that just, I don't want to talk to this person anymore. It's, it's beginning to irritate me. I don't feel that valuable because their body language is giving it away. They're not emotionally connected with me. And when we want to connect with God, we've, it's, it's just the part of conversation that, that's just there or it isn't. If our emotions are into it, if, if our body language is getting into it, if our focus is there, there's a level of conversation and communication and prayer that can happen that's totally different than if our emotions are somewhere else or if we're distracted. And all throughout Scripture, we kind of learn that lesson. I think we learn it by experience too. And so Habakkuk, as he brings it to culmination here, writes this song. Like one of the Psalms, you see throughout it the word Salah, and it, it, you see that in the Psalms too. It's a song. And it comes down to verse 17 as he concludes kind of his emotions and where he's at and, and his, his feelings and, and communicating with God. He comes down to verse 17 and listen to what this says. Because I think it's some of the most powerful writing in all of Scripture. It says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and, and there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, let's just stop there and back up again. Do you hear what he's saying? So their whole economy is agriculture and livestock and, and those kinds of things. And he's saying, even if the crops don't come in, even if the fig trees don't bud like they're, they're supposed to, and there's no grapes on the vine like there needs to be, and the fields are producing no food, which means we can't go to the grocery store and get the stuff that has the preservatives or is canned or whatever. It's, there's no food. So even though, there's a fa even though all this stuff happens and there's no cattle in the stalls, even though the economy is going bad, even though you might be looking at foreclosure, even though your own bank account is in the red, even though you don't know how you're going to provide for your family, even though you don't know what is next, even though you don't know how you're going to survive today or this week because the pain is real, I mean, it's not just emotions. It's emotions tied to circumstances that are real. It's, it's suffering. And even though this happens, listen to what Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful 
in God my Savior. I'm joyful. I mean, there's a lot of verses in Scripture kind of like this. James talks about consider your trials pure joy. But I will be joyful in the midst of all this calamity going on. And there's a key word here, and if you're one of those people that marks your Bible, circle that word in. It happens twice. There's a couplet here. I will rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And circle that word in. See, it's real easy for us to understand that we can rejoice when certain circumstances prevail. This last week I played Powerball. It was up to $136 million. Um, Kip bought the ticket though, so it was actually, I was with Kip and that's really where it came from. It's a bad influence on me. But for two days I kind of thought that I was going to win the Powerball. I mean, have you ever started thinking that way? Like, you know what? I know this is really improbable, but I, I have needs and and God can do this. And, uh, and I remembered this story a preacher once said where a guy prayed to God, you know, hey, help me win the lottery. And, and he didn't win the lottery, didn't win the lottery, didn't win the lottery. And he's kind of getting angry with God and saying, hey, God, how come you aren't helping me win the lottery? And, and God answers down out of the cloud and says, help me out, buy a ticket. Um, so I remembered that little illustration. And I'm like, I bought the ticket. I'm doing my part here, and God's going to bring this money, and, and I'm going to give 90% of it away. I'm going to be a reverse tither. You know, I mean, I'd still have, like, what, $6 million left, you know? So I'm going to give, like, 90% of it away, and so God's going to do this. And I was kind of getting excited. Uh, I didn't win, by the way. Um, I was, I was, yeah, I mean, we've all done that. You know, what would you do if you won all this money? You, know, you begin to dream about all these little things you're going to do. It's pretty easy to see that when certain circumstances come around, how we can get excited, how we can rejoice. But there's also a type of rejoicing that can come from a set of circumstances or a reality that is independent of us. Let me explain what I, what I mean by that. There's, there's, there are things that we can rejoice in that are independent in some sense from us or our pain or our circumstances. A sunset, if you go, there was a beautiful one last night, but if you go watch a sunset, I mean that sunset is beautiful no matter you, whether you've just been laughing or crying. I mean you could still have tears on your cheeks or, or getting into your mouth, you could still be sobbing and when that sunset gets to a certain point and lights up those clouds, you will still be in awe of it. Regardless of your emotions, regardless of your circumstances, you'll still see it and be in awe of it. And God is like that. God is independent in some sense. And when we look at him and we look at how high he is, and boy, he's got 20,000 chess moves planned out, and it's all going to balance out or shake down for good somehow, some way. I know it. I believe it. I walk by faith. God is good and he's sovereign. I can rejoice in that. Let me explain uh, something here. In chapter 2, if you go backwards, God says this in chapter 2 where God's getting his turn to kind of talk, and he says this, for the earth, chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth is going to be completely blanketed 
by the knowledge that God is big and he's good and that there's glory, there's weight, there's value there, just like waters cover the sea. It's going to be comprehensive total. People are going to realize that God has glory. If God had have just answered Habakkuk's prayer, it wouldn't have accomplished as big of a thing as what God says he can accomplish. If I had won the lottery, it's not going to glorify God like, like waters cover the seas or, or in the seas. My ideas and my plans, the things I want God to come along with, and even my, my, my very real pain, it's smaller than, than the, the total of what God is doing and can do. And that's something we need to realize. Because as we trust God, we're trusting that his plan is bigger than our plan. That what he's ultimately going to do is going to outweigh the felt reality of our pain and our suffering and all the tears that we can cry. And so we have to wait in recognition of that. And in the middle of that, we can look at God like that sunset and be in awe. He's big, and he's got this plan, and man, it's just beyond me. Yet he still wants to talk to me about it, and he wants to comfort me, and in that I can take strength. And so Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. All through Psalms and Proverbs, it talks about God being this foundation, this, this thing that we stand on, or a strong tower, the thing that protects, the thing that, that grounds, that allows us to, to be grounded. In the book of Psalms, it also talks about his enduring love. If you've ever read all the way through the Psalms, over and over, his love endures forever. And then there's another phrase for his love, it's unfailing. That means as long as this thing is playing out, God's love still endures through that. And it's not going to let you down. It's not going to fail. It's there. And so we can rejoice in the Lord. Next verse is this in verse 19. It says this. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The Lord who is sovereign, the one who is in control of the future, who knows what's going to happen, the sovereign Lord, that one who's in charge, okay, he is my strength, and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on the heights. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. In other translations, it's called hind's feet. Hind's being a reference to a, a deer, another name for a deer, hind's feet. There's a wonderful allegory written called hind's feet on high places, and I love it. We've got like one copy at our book table if you want to buy it on the way out, but it's better than Pilgrim's Progress. It's an amazing little book, but it takes its whole cue from this. And it takes his cue from this and it begins to expound what does it really mean that he gives me the feet of a deer enabling me to go on the heights. And this is what it means. I worked at a, worked at a summer camp outside of Los Angeles in the mountains there called uh, Pine Summit, Big Bear Mountains. Or Big Bear's the town, San Bernardino Mountains. But Pine Summit's this camp and it wasn't the richest camp so it wasn't all paved and it's on the slope of the hill, so most of it's dirt on the slope, rocky terrain, whatever. And you come from wherever you've been, college or high school or whatever, you come to this camp, and you're going to work as a counselor for the whole summer, and your ankles aren't yet ready for this kind of unstable, rocky terrain. 
It's amazing, by the end of the first week, from all the hiking around you do and the walking you do, because you have to stabilize just subtly with each step, that your ankles get really tired and sore. All those little stabilizer ligaments or muscles, whatever. They just get really sore. And when you play games during the summer with these kids, that you have all these twisted ankles. And you, know, you get the little nurse station, and there's always kids in there with twisted ankles. Always. And then during the summer, if you stay long enough, what begins to happen is your ankles become stronger. And as you're hiking, and you're, we do, you know, on the weekends we do these big climbs on some of the different mountains around there. And as your ankles get stronger, you just are able to power through whatever terrain you're on. And the bottom line is simply this. Sometimes instead of changing our circumstances so that it's easier to walk, sometimes instead of changing our circumstances so that it's easier to walk, God strengthens us so that it's easier to walk through our circumstances. Let me say it again. Sometimes God doesn't change our circumstances, our pain, our suffering. He doesn't, doesn't do away with the realities in our life. They're so difficult. Sometimes God doesn't change the circumstances to make it easier for us to walk. Instead, God, in reverse, strengthens us so that we can walk through our circumstances. He gives us the feet of a deer, and enables us to walk on the rocky places and the high places. And there are some of you this morning that might be in the midst of the worst pain of your life. And someday I honestly believe that looking back you'll realize that this moment or other painful moments were also the most spiritual times of your life. And that's the hard part, that God uses suffering or can work through suffering. It says in Hebrews that he chose to make the author of our salvation, Jesus, he chose to perfect him through suffering. And Paul, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, had this ailment and he prayed about it multiple times. And finally he just said, God's not going to remove the ailment, I've got to acclimate to it. And he says this wonderful thing, he says, I learned through that that when I am weak, then I am strong. And the reality is that God can use our pain and he can use our suffering and he can strengthen us through that and he can work in us through that. And what we realize is it's, it's not that suffering or pain has no value for life. It's that it kills the motivation for life. You see, when we're suffering, we kind of see the race mapped out for us. We know where we have to go. We know it's a marathon. We know it's tough. We know we're going to get through it somehow. And we know we're going to grow in perseverance and endurance and in character as we run that race. The problem with pain and suffering is it kicks us in the gut. And we double over and we don't want to run. Habakkuk, earlier on in his prayer and in his song, says this in verse 16. I heard in my heart pounded and my lips quivered and decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Have you ever felt that way? Where you just want to curl up into a ball and you just, you just, your emotions are here? The Hebrews 
the seat of the emotions for the Hebrews were their guts. So in the Old, in the Old Testament, every time it talks about heart, that's really just a, a twist, an American twist, because for us, the seat of the emotions is the heart. For them, when you're really stressed or you feel emotions, it's down here, so it was the guts. Can you imagine that? I gut you instead of I heart you, you know? But so in our Bible, it changes it to heart so that we understand what's going on. But, but the seed of the emotions here were the guts for the Hebrews and decay crept into my bones and it was here and I was doubled over. And it's not that I can't understand that God is sovereign. It's not that I can't understand that he can use this. It's that I don't have the motivation. I don't have the will. And yet Habakkuk comes to this conclusion. He says, yet I will wait patiently. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I'll wait patiently to, to see God reconcile and resolve all of this for good because my all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God exists and I believe it and I have faith in him and I'm walking by that and I will wait. The, the verse, and this is the last thing, the verse that the most trying time of my life after I got saved early on when I was a new believer the verse that just spoke volumes to me was Isaiah 64.4, and it says, since, since ancient times, no one has perceived, no ear has heard, no eye has seen any God like you who acts, acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Since ancient times, no, no one has perceived, no ear has heard, no eye has seen any other God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And just as we go into song this morning, our psalm, our prayer, this whole question of pain, this series on pain, what you feel in the seat of your emotions down here in your guts, it begins with questions, it begins with faith. And it ends with questions and it ends with faith and hopefully in the middle of that reassurance that our God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Amen. Sometimes it is.